This is episode 330 with competitive endurance runner, former running coach, the founder of Critical Oxygen, and human bioenergetics PhD, Phil Batterson. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and my singular goal is to help you improve your running by getting stronger, racing faster, preventing more injuries, and achieving more of your goals. I'm a monthly columnist for Trail Runner Magazine, formerly a 239 marathoner, and creator of the Performance Training Journal that's now available on Amazon. You can learn more about me and strength running at strengthrunning.com. And if you enjoy this show, Please support our partners who are offering you some great deals on amazing products that can help you improve your performance and overall health. First is the Mobo Board. Go to moboboard.com and use code STRENGTHRUN10 to save 10% on your board. This was invented by renowned physical therapist Jay DeSherry, and Mobo helps you stabilize your stance with an innovative rocker board that forces you to improve your stability with proper mechanics from the foot up. Stronger runners experience less wear and tear on their joints, so let's get strong, and then, as Jay likes to say, use that strength the right way. Get your Mobo board at moboboard.com, and don't forget code STRENGTHRUN10. It'll save you 10%. We're also supported by the high-nutrient probiotic drink, AG1. I love this stuff. It's the most popular greens mix available for good reason. It has 75 vitamins and minerals, prebiotics, probiotics, antioxidants, and adaptogens. I try to have some AG1 every single day, and AG1 is trying to make taking control of your health even easier. They're going to give you a free one-year supply of immune system supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. You can't be fast if you're not first healthy. So visit drinkag1.com slash Jason, and you can choose from a single purchase or a monthly drop to make this part of your ongoing nutrition plan. Get all the details at drinkag1.com slash Jason. All right, my guest today is Phil Batterson. Phil is an avid endurance athlete and has competed in everything from rowing to college track and field, ultra running, and even triathlons. He has coached nationally successful running teams at the high school and junior college level, and he recently received his PhD in human bioenergetics from Oregon State University, where he studied how exercise remodels your mitochondria. Phil is also the founder of Critical Oxygen, where his goal now is to teach athletes and coaches how to optimize their physiology to maximize endurance performance. Our conversation today revolves around the three thresholds. You didn't think that you just had one threshold, did you? We actually have three physiological thresholds, your zone two boundary, your lactate threshold, and your VO2 max. We're going to explore what happens at each one of these thresholds, how you find them, the adaptations that occur from exercising at these intensity zones, and how to implement each one into your running program. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Phil Batterson. Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense because I feel like there's is a disconnect between researchers and coaches because researchers are in the lab, right? Mm-hmm. And then there are coaches who are out there in the field and you can make decisions in the field based on what's going on in the lab, 
mm-hmm. but you can't make decisions in the lab based on what you see in the field. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would say I would say immediately when you said that is like the lab is kind of like the white glove, very controlled, you know, sort of situation environment. You know, we even we even write down temperature, humidity, you know, like what somebody ate for breakfast that day, like other things like that. And we're controlling as many variables as we possibly can within the lab. But then you get out into, you know, the real world, the field, and it's it's not like that. I had I gave a, a lecture on uh, heat training and altitude acclimation to uh, a group of ultra runners at the Carmichael training system, um, you know, on the Carmichael training system platform. And what I walked away from that is like, you know, I gave this like, I, I thought it was a pretty good talk on, oh, this research shows that if you do heat training and stuff like that. Um, you know, you can, you can increase your ability to maybe tolerate altitude. And when you go to altitude, you need to, you know, back off your pace because you're gonna, you know, from these physiological, this physiological standpoint, you're going to reduce by this much. And what I walked away with is people are like, well, give me a practical field test that I can actually do to make sure that my athletes actually ready for whatever pace it is. Like, you know, they're like, I hear you with the science, like that's all well and good. But unless we have the ability to translate to when somebody goes up and they don't have a trainer, they don't, maybe they don't have a heart rate monitor or lactate strips or, you know, all of the other sort of things that we as researchers would say is, is required is like, well, we still need a good estimate of, you know, like what's their sustainable pace going to be? Um, how can we actually estimate that? So yeah, it was, a. It was a, it was a big rant. And, um, I, I do think that there is a large disconnect between the science and the, and the application, but you know, that's part of my mission is now to bridge that gap is like, we can take all that science, but what is actually, somebody said this on my podcast, what, what becomes practical or what is practical becomes optimal. So we, we need to figure out, you know, the, the optimal side of things by doing the research, but then the practical side of things. And that's where the coaches come in. So you need both. I love that. And and I think that's what we're going to do today. I want to talk more about all these different thresholds. Um, and we're going to go a little deep on the physiology side. That's always a reason for me to get excited because I'm kind of a physiology nerd, even though I'm not actually a, a physiologist. But uh, I would love to just maybe start with your background first. You know, what got you into this area of study? Uh, I understand that, that you're a coach as well. Give us a little background on you. Yeah, so uh, I'll try to keep it brief because it's it's this big you know kind of odyssey of a journey that I've that I've been down. Um, I started running cross country and track back in like eighth grade. Um, I just so happened to be pretty good at it, and you know that kind of I, I think when we're kids, right? If we if we get something that we're good at, we kind of glom onto that, and we're like, okay, let's see where this goes. So I ran throughout high school and didn't quite get good enough to run say at like a a university and I had my heart set on running or going to the university of Michigan for mechanical engineering. That was like my first, uh, you know, true love, true career, uh, that I wanted to pursue. So I went to the university of Michigan, actually rode for a year. So another endurance sport, that was pretty fun. It was a, it was a club sport, walked on, I was a lightweight, ended up, you know, having, having a little bit of success, but ended up getting injuries. I think you can attest to this, you know, it's like, push our bodies too hard, get injured. It's really frustrating. And I also had some injuries in, in high school as well. Um, transitioned out of rowing, got into triathlon for a little bit, got convinced by a guy that I'd be good at Ironman triathlons. So I trained seven months for my first triathlon ever. And it turned out to be, uh, 
Iron Man Louisville in 2012. Um, so that was that was kind of fun. It gets me interested. I had no idea what like, you know, carbohydrate intake was or, you know, like eating to fuel my races or anything like that. Um, and went down like so then eventually graduated uh, with a degree in mechanical engineering, but then went down and just absolutely, you know, did not enjoy what I was doing. So I was like, okay, well, what do I really want to do? And it always comes back to, um, I, I never had great mentors or yeah, I never had like great coaching mentors and stuff. I always kind of had to piece things together on my own, do things like that. So I was like, oh, maybe coaching would be fun. So I, I, I started to work under, um, a really successful coach down in Marietta, Georgia, and it just so happened that he had uh, five guys on his high school team who could run under 16 minutes for the 5K, and they qualified for the Nike National meet. So that was like a super cool experience being like, oh, I'm just the assistant coach here. And, you know, this coach is super successful, and we're going to the Nike National meet. So I, I, I you know, kind of like saw what a culture of success looked like. And then I was like, okay, I need to go back to a community college and just take some like biology courses, you know, exercise physiology, anatomy, physiology, those sort of things. And I reached out to the head coach at the junior college at the time and was like, hey, do you need an assistant coach? I'll do it for free. I just, I'm taking some classes, but I want to learn from, and he was also pretty successful. Like he had success, like at the national level for the, for the men and the women in the past. And he was like, hey, if you haven't used your eligibility, I know you're 24, but uh, you, you seem like you could be good enough to actually run on our team. So as a 24-year-old, I was running junior college cross country and track. And that was super rewarding too, because I got to see you know his process. And, and the women's team that year won the national championship in cross country. So I was like the assistant coach, but also running on the team at the same time. So it was a really interesting dynamic. And I, I really felt I don't know if you've ever felt this, but, but I, I feel there's like times where everything kind of clicks and goes the right direction. And that's exactly how I felt when I was coaching running at the same time. So, uh, eventually that led to me being like, okay, well, I want to go do my master's in applied physiology so then I can become a coach. That was, that was the big thing and went and did my master's degree in applied physiology under Dr. Robbie Jacobs, who's a co-host on my, on my podcast. And, um, he really got me interested actually in mitochondrial physiology. So, you know, it's like, okay, the coaching stuff, I was like, okay, yeah, this is great. And then I just went deep down the molecular rabbit hole, mitochondrial physiology. So that's what I did. Uh, so then I followed that up by going and doing my PhD at Oregon State University in molecular exercise physiology, where we looked at how exercise and dietary interventions really affected our mitochondria and our cellular, uh, patterns that would that would help uh improve our mitochondria with those interventions and now i'm i'm kind of taking a step back and trying to get back into more of like that coaching and applied sort of side of things so it's kind of cyclical right I, I deep down a rabbit hole come back up for air and uh it's it's been really fun because i think the biggest thing that pushes me is that i always wanted to optimize myself and through that that's why i've dove down all of these super deep rabbit holes. And now I want to help people translate the science into optimizing their own physiology. That was awesome. And I think I heard a new phrase I've never heard before, which was molecular rabbit hole. I don't think anyone has <laughs> ever gone down a molecular rabbit hole in my life before. I'm glad someone is. Um, 
I feel a lot of parallels to my own journey, just being really interested in optimizing my own performances and, and being really interested in the process of improvement and, and all that goes into that. And, and just being a little bit geeky on you know the science side of things and, and really wanting to know how how things work and what is actually going on in your body when you're in a race situation and you don't feel good. Well, why don't you feel good? What is happening there? Like what is actually going on there? And can I train in such a way to maybe extend the amount of time that I feel good? And that's maybe the the most simple way we can describe run training in, in just one sentence right there. Um, a big reason why I wanted to talk to you today is because you recently posted about the three thresholds which immediately got my attention because I was under the impression that runners only have one threshold, their lactate threshold. You know, we could talk about ventilatory threshold too, but uh, no one talks about that. And that just seems to be not really a, a thing that runners care too much about. But your point is that these thresholds are based on your physiology, meaning what is occurring within our bodies. So let's dive into this and talk a little bit more of this. Uh, I think this is going to be really fascinating for our listeners um, so, so what are the three thresholds? Yeah, I'll, I'll start with a definition of, of what a threshold is and what we're trying to actually like measure with it. So a threshold is, is trying to delineate between a change in your physiology. So you have a threshold that's like at a pretty low intensity and the change in that physiology is a shift from fat oxidation. It's not fully fat oxidation, but it's, it's maximal fat oxidation to more carbohydrate oxidation. We can think of carbohydrates as our high octane fuel and fats as kind of like our more efficient, uh, Prius like gasoline sort of fuel. Then you have a second threshold, which is, I think is what a lot of people are familiar with, right? You said lactate threshold. Um, it's lactate threshold two or ventilatory threshold two, it's the, it's the delineation point between exercise intensity that is sustainable and that is unsustainable. And what I mean by that, cause that can get a little confusing too, is that under your second threshold, you should be able to run at that pace for 30 to 60 minutes, depending on, you know, really what, uh, you know, whatever you're training for above that threshold, it's a a finite amount of time before you fatigue to the point where you can't sustain that effort any longer. And that, that upper limit is your VO2 max. So that's what I call now the third threshold is your VO2 max. It's the maximal aerobic capacity or your, your body's ability to use oxygen at high intensities. And I was actually, I was thinking about this today because you had, you had sent over topics you wanted to talk about and somebody else reached out to me and they're like, well, and they didn't say it just like this, but I think there might be a fourth threshold in a sense. And that is your maximal power output, your maximal sprint capacity. So that's more of a, a of a mechanical, you know, sort of, sort of threshold, but that would set the boundary of your, you know, total system power, right? Your VO2 max is going to set your maximal aerobic power. And then you kind of work, work down it from there. So we can work in the, in the realm of, of the three, but I think, I think it's useful to know what your, your maximal speed or power actually is. Cause there's, you know, there's a zone there, right. You know, at the, at the very end of, I guess we would call it what, like zone, zone five probably is like kind of that sprint capacity where you're above VO2 max speed or power and up to your maximal sprinting 
speed or power. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking back to my track days right now. I mean, this is like probably anything faster than than 3k or two mile race pace is probably you know your high end vo2 max and and once you start getting to maybe 800 meter race pace you're you're well beyond vo2 max i mean you're running on borrow time from step number two in an 800 meter race uh and then when you get down to the 400 i mean do you consider that like almost just like a like 99% 99% of maximum sprint speed. And, and that's like a, you know, just like a, a very fine striation within this, this grading system of effort. Yeah. I think we can, you know, you can get as really as granular as you want, depending on what event you're doing. Um, I, it's hard to quantify that because for me personally, you know, my, uh, maximal sprint ability was probably, my 400 pace and I couldn't really sprint any faster than my 400 pace. But then if you get a sprinter, you know, their maximal sprint capacity could be much, much faster, right. than uh, you know, that, that 400 pace. So obviously it depends, uh, you know, in terms of putting a percentage on it, but yeah, I think, I think when you get above like that view two max, you know, sort of, sort of threshold, you need to be really careful about how you're prescribing the work that's being done. And generally I would say lean a little bit more towards like the, the speed or like a time domain, say you're doing 400 meter repeats on a track and they need to be faster than that, you know, 3000, uh, meter race pace. Um, you, you can't really rely as much on, on heart rate anymore because heart rate takes time, right. To come, to come up and plateau. Um, so, so, you know, for example, you might run 400s and be doing them all day, but you may never actually reach, you know, your your maximal heart rate in a sense. Um, so that, that's, that's a little bit of an aside, but yeah, I think, I think my biggest thing is that you, you can kind of use your physiological variables to dictate and monitor, you know, your, your up to your first threshold between your first and second threshold, and then up to your VO two max. But then after that, you kind of have to rely a little bit more on, um, speed and quality of movement as like your, uh, metric for how you're actually gauging intensity. Yeah, that's we could probably talk about just that aspect of things for for an entire episode. Mm-hmm. Let's get back to these three thresholds. I, I think we know one is VO2 max. That's the third threshold. The second threshold is what we're more used to hearing about, which is your lactate threshold. The first threshold was interesting to me. That is essentially your zone two boundary. Can you talk a little bit about that first threshold and uh, you know, I'm particularly interested in this because zone two training just seems to be all the rage right now. And, you know, I, I, I seem to not be too dogmatic about it. You know, I'm like, heaven forbid, we venture a little bit into zone three, it's going to be okay, everyone. But give, give me some sense on what is this zone two boundary and, and maybe how we can find it too. Yeah. I mean that, like you just touched on that, that's another disconnect between the research community and, in in coaching, right. Is the research community. If you look at, you know, the training distributions of elite level marathoners and stuff like that, they're like, Oh, 80% zone two, 20% higher, you know, higher effort sort of stuff. And then from that people, I think sometimes take it a little bit too literally and are just like, I have to do that because all the elites are training that way. Um, when in all actuality, right, it's it, not, you don't have to be right at that zone too. Um, but 
let's let's define zone two. So I define it as the transition point from maximal fat oxidation towards more glycolysis or carbohydrate oxidation. And the reason I define it as that is because when we when we're getting into that first threshold, we're trying to detect very, very small changes in our physiology. So for example, somebody, you know, if if, if somebody uses lactate, they would, you know, potentially be or they would say the definition of your first threshold or zone two threshold is the first rise in lactate above steady or above resting. So you might see, you know, that be a a small increase or you might have a, a one millimole increase, or you might see it as, uh, the point where lactate levels go above two millimole. Again, though, like that was a lot of definitions, but the whole point is to figure out where we're transitioning from maximal fat oxidation, which could be sustainable for almost an an infinite amount of time to where we're transitioning to glycolysis. And we know that, uh, glycogen and, you know, from that perspective, blood glucose is, uh, going to be a limiting factor. And is one of the, the big players in fatigue, especially if we're running a fast marathon, right. You know, you hear people talking about the bonk. Oh, I hit the bonk at 18 miles at 20 miles, whatever it is. That's because you're running out of, out of muscle glycogen or liver glycogen, and your body is having a really tough time maintaining blood glucose at that point. So your, your brain is essentially shutting everything down because it's not getting enough glucose and it's saying, you know, you're getting fatigued. And I don't, I don't know if that's the, the, the perfect scientific definition of it, but yeah, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to detect where a small shift in your physiology is away from fat oxidation. And that's, if you, if you listen to other people talk about it, they say, oh, well, that's when you start to recruit, uh, you know, your type two fibers. So, you know, you go from your type one fibers, which are primarily your endurance, slow twitch fibers to type two fibers, which are a little bit more reliant on carbohydrate oxidation. Um, so is that, did that answer your question? Yes, but I do have follow-up questions. Perfect. Yeah, uh, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't think you were going to come on a podcast and not get follow-ups. Yet. No, I, I thought this was going to be a 10-minute 10, a 10 talk and we were going to be done. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that all does absolutely make sense. I want to clarify that when you're talking about this time period when, okay, now I'm starting to recruit more type 2 fibers and because of that, use more carbohydrate to fuel my exercise, is that after the zone two boundary or is that kind of before it? (sighs) That's, that's tough. And you know, you, you, you mentioned earlier, right? Lactate, right. is generally, I think in running a little bit more accepted as like the way of monitoring where these, these boundaries are, because let's be honest, most of us don't have a metabolic device that we can put on our face and measure oxygen consumption. Cause that's really how we're determining whether we're burning carbohydrates or fats. Um, but you have to think about in terms of, in terms of the physiology, what's actually happening. So if we're trying to measure the transition or the, the switching point from maximal fat oxidation to more carbohydrate oxidation, we can get a pretty good idea if we're measuring it at the mouth and we're measuring consumed oxygen and expired CO2. If we're measuring lactate, 
it takes a little bit of time for lactate to start to accumulate within the blood because we start to have those shifts. And without going another hour long in terms of the explanation, um, what's happening is because you're recruiting more of those type two fibers, you're starting to break down more carbohydrate. That carbohydrate can no longer be taken into the, the mitochondria fast enough. So then what happens is you start to convert the end product of that carbohydrate into lactate. That lactate can go to other fibers or it can go into the blood. So you're essentially, you're trying to detect when lactate is starting to build up in the blood, which is a, it's a, it's a couple steps away from that switch from fat oxidation to carbohydrate oxidation. So if we're using, you know, that peer definition, then those type two fibers being recruited and lactate starting to accumulate in the blood is, or should temporally occur after your, your zone two. But I think it's, I think it's so close. Like you were, like we were talking about offline. I think it's so close that it doesn't really matter. Right. You know, you're not, if you're going from like lactate concentrations of 1.8 millimole to two millimole, that's not going to immediately shut down all fat oxidation and ruin any, you know, ruin your zone two work. Uh, just like you were saying is like, yeah, you can get into zone three a little bit. Um, so you're still going to get the majority of the adaptations that you're trying to elicit from, you know, that, that zone two training, if you're a little bit above, and even if you're a little bit, a bit below, or even if you're a lot below, honestly. So let me ask you like a real, real training question at this point. Cause now, now I'm thinking about like how I could potentially use this information to design a good workout. Let's say I'm going for a long run. I'm going to run for two hours. What if I ran the first hour and 45 minutes squarely in zone two, I'm at the peak of my fat oxidation. I'm using mostly type one fibers, though after an hour and 45 minutes, they're probably getting a little fatigued. Now I start picking up the pace a little bit. I get, I get into zone three for the last 15 minutes of my long run. It's still kind of an easy effort. You know, it's not even close to my marathon pace, uh, Am I now stressing my type two fibers and my carbohydrate use a little bit more than I was before? And is that going to yield a more beneficial training adaptation at the end of the day? That's a phenomenal question because what I've, I've, I've heard a lot of, of really good scientists kind of talk about, you know, it's what I tell my students in exercise physiology, what I used to tell my students is physiology is like a dimmer switch, not a light switch, right? So whenever you're, you're having stresses or adaptations, you're, you're adjusting a dimmer switch rather than turning something on or turning something off. And I think too often people start to talk about, oh, we're either oxidizing fats or oxidating carbohydrates. And you touched on a a perfect example of this. So if we're doing a two hour long run, we start, we're squarely in zone two. And we go for about an hour and a half. What's really going to happen if you're not intaking carbohydrates, and even if you are, you're going to start to run out of muscle muscle glycogen, right? So that's going to shift our reliance from carbohydrates to fat oxidation to begin with. However, if we're then if we then go to slightly speed up, what's also going to happen is we're going to start to recruit type two fibers, and you have two types of type two fibers. You have type two A and type two X. The type 2A are extremely adaptable. 
So you could have type 2A fibers that really look a lot like your type 1 fibers. And you can have type 2A fibers that look a lot like your type 2X fibers. It just depends on how you train. It's the classic, uh, <laughs> it's a classic example of like the person who's like, oh, do you want to look like either a sprinter or a marathoner, you know, sort of deal. And it's like, like, have you ever seen that before? Yeah, I think it's kind of ridiculous. It's, it's a hundred percent ridiculous, but, but the, the bottom line is, is that, you know, whatever you're training towards is kind of where you're going to shift, obviously not to that extreme. And then I always point out to people, it's like, well, that marathoner just ran a faster mile than you can sprint a hundred meters. So, uh, you know, that's a, it's, it's a, it's a moot point. I, I do, I too get pissed about it. Um, but the, the point, the point of that was, is that those type two, a fibers can be extremely adaptable either way. So at the end of a one and a, one and a half hours of running, if you speed up a little bit, get a little bit into your, uh, you know, zone three, say you're using heart rate, right? Most likely you're going to be a little bit dehydrated anyway. So your heart rate's going to start ticking up. And then on top of that, if you go a little faster, you need more ATP because of the higher power output. And that's just going to push those type two fibers to actually adapt more to that aerobic phenotype, that type one phenotype. So most likely you're probably going to get proliferation of the mitochondria within those type two fibers. If you already, if you haven't already started to get those adaptations, more mitochondria is going to allow for more fat oxidation because the mitochondria are the only place in the body where fat can actually be burned. And by having more mitochondria, you're able then to burn more fat. So yeah, absolutely. And it, you know, if we think we, we talk about second threshold training a lot, right? Oh, in order to get better at second threshold, you need to train at or slightly above second threshold. Same thing with your, your first threshold. If you want to push that first threshold up, you have to train close to it or slightly above it in order to push those adaptations, make your body adapt more. So does that mean that this faster finish long run idea that we're talking about right now, it is maybe a great idea for your endurance runner, your half marathoner, your marathoner. But if you're say a collegiate 1500 meter runner, you're a middle distance guy, maybe you don't want to convert all your type two, a fibers closer to type one fibers, and you should keep your long runs easy so that you have more flexibility with those fibers when you're doing faster workouts on the track or doing hills or whatever you might be doing. Is that a fair understanding of, of how you might apply that? That's a, that's a really good thought. And I want to, I want to remind everybody though, that I, I think, I, I think you'd be getting marginal gains from a fast finish long run, for example. And, you know, you it's hard to say because it's, it's so context specific, right? If, if you're really focused, if you're a 1500 meter runner and you need to get faster, you know, like, like you're, you're just simply not speedy enough to run a really, really fast 1500, then you should probably do or be focusing on a lot more of that high end speed work, right. To, to try to get better. But a very powerful aerobic system is also going to be beneficial because you're going to spare carbohydrates for longer and yeah, 1500, you know, it's like if you're, if you're, you know, elite is, is sub four minutes, but that's still highly, highly aerobic. So by developing your aerobic system, by having more of those type one fibers in the context of then doing faster work is going to, I think, lead to, you know, more benefit. 
but I don't think it's a bad idea. You know, if, if an athlete can, can handle doing a long run and then finishing it harder, and maybe that's a mental piece too, right? Because I think a lot of the times you see marathoners and they're just like, okay, they get to the two and a half or, you know, two, two hour and 30 minute mark or something like that. And then they're like, maybe they haven't practiced going faster during like their long runs or something like that. That could lead to them being like, oh, I can't, I can't in- increase my speed right now. Whereas the the speed increase, if you're doing that consistently over time, you're training your body to run faster. You're training your mind to deal with it more at the end of a run. So yeah, there's a psychological piece involved with that too. But I think I, I really do think it's it's kind of marginal gains because you know two hours, whether you're at you know your 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 zone two or slightly above zone two it's, it's going to be, you're, you're going to gain a lot of those adaptations no matter what. Well, I've, I've enjoyed putting you on the spot with these random hypotheticals oh, that no, it's, it's great <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, either don't make sense or, or just scratching my own itch. Um, so, okay. First threshold, our zone two boundary, uh, clearly that this is a sustainable effort. It does the most for building mitochondrial volume and fatigue resistance So obviously we want a lot of our training, in fact, most of our training around zone two, it also seems just more sustainable. It'll help us stay healthy in the long term. You know, even though I said there's nothing really wrong with zone three, you don't want to do all your training in zone three because it's probably just too stressful mechanically on your body and it'll probably lead to some type of soft tissue injury. Let's talk about the threshold that we know the most about. And maybe we can spend the least amount of time on this one, which is the uh, lactate threshold. Uh, I think you have a couple other fun names for this threshold because you know you're you're a researcher too. Uh, so tell us a little bit about uh, lactate threshold and and why it's so important. Yeah. So again, definition. It's the it's the boundary between sustainable and unsustainable intensity. And if you actually if you if you talk to uh, Dr. Robbie Jacobs about this, he has a little bit more of a, he has a little bit of a different. Uh, definition that I actually really like. So he deems your second threshold as whatever you can maintain for the the race time that is going to be required. So for example, it, yeah, so so for example, if you're an ultra runner, then your second threshold is going to actually shift down and be a lot closer to zone 2 than for example if you're a 10k runner. If you're a 10K runner, your your second threshold is going to be almost at maybe slightly above your what we say in the research as second threshold, just to make things more confusing for people. Um, yeah, thanks, Phil. Thank yeah, you. you're well, you're welcome. Um, but <laughs> then to clarify, so so the the scientific definition is you know sustainable to unsustainable, and typically that's uh, what you could maintain for 30 to 60 minutes. And that's essentially like you're collapsing across the finish line at, you know, 30 minutes or at 60 minutes. And that's, a, that's, a, that's quite a wide range, right? So, so that's also, that's also something that, you know, okay. So research is like, well, that's pretty wide range. So what you'll, what you'll see in the literature is you'll see lactate values above four millimolar. Um, I'm not a fan of using any static, you know, like two millimolar, four millimolar, because I think, it, it takes away the nuance of, of things like lactate and other things like that. But what you should be looking for are, is an inflection point. So if you're exercising, exercising, and then you, all of a sudden you, it gets too hard and you see that lactate just jump 
that's what you should be looking for in terms of the the second threshold. Um, you'll also see it defined as maximal lactate steady state. Um, this is this is a really hard one to actually do because it requires you to come into the lab and do like five repeat trials of like 30 minutes at that boundary of sustainable to unsustainable. And if, if you've ever tried this before, it's brutal. Um, and what they do or what the researchers do is they'll measure your blood lactate every minute, every five minutes. And then what they'll see is you'll see lactate come up and then it'll either reach a steady state or if you overshoot it, it'll come up and then it'll keep actually going up. And what you're trying to find is that last point where it does reach a steady state. Again, it's all trying to figure out the same thing. Where does our body go from uh, being able to reestablish some sort of internal homeostasis to not? And so you'll also see ventilatory thresholds. You'll see near uh, SMO2 breakpoints, which is measured by near infrared spectroscopy, which is something that I've been involved with a little bit more lately. Um, let's see what else. There's like heart, some heart rate thresholds. There's it, there's a lot of different ways to try to measure it, but the bottom line is, is you're just trying to estimate, you know, what your, what your tempo, what your threshold, what your maintainable speed would be for 30 to 60 minutes. Yeah. And I've always known that, you know, a lot of coaches that I've had in the past have used the, the 60 minute, one hour race, uh, threshold as your, your tempo. Um, and, and I've since modified that a little bit to, if you are well-trained, it's your one hour race pace. And, and I think that's speaking to that 30 to 60 minute range, because there are some people who, you know, maybe they've only been running for six months or a year. They don't have this developed aerobic system yet. And their, you know, one hour race pace is probably not physiologically indicative of that threshold because it, they probably have to run slower. Um, you know, I've also seen it as this, you know, maybe 85 to 90% of of maximum heart rate, uh, w w would you be able to peg the lactate threshold to a certain heart rate? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that's that's what I, I that's what I always try to do. So whenever you're trying, you're doing physiological testing, you what I like to do is I like to have a mechanical output, so either speed or power, and then have a number of different internal variables. So heart rate being one of them because it's one of the easiest things for athletes to measure right? You just put a heart rate strap on, sync it to your watch and off you go. And then you use an internal metric like lactate ventilation, SMO2 data to then figure out where those tipping points are. So that's where you first start. And then you say, okay, well, at that second tipping point that we had, your heart rate was 155 beats per minute. And on this day on the treadmill, you were running, I don't know, seven minutes per mile, something like that. So, so if you're getting an appropriate test done, that's what the, uh, that's what the researcher, that's what the person should give you is all of those metrics, um, as well as probably a range that, uh, you know, those, those could fall in, um, because you're, your first threshold, your second threshold aren't going to happen, you know, in terms of the, the same speed every single day. They're not going to happen in terms of the same heart rate every single day, depending on how fatigued you are, if you're tired, uh, if you're stressed out, uh, if you're dehydrated, 
um, and, and other things like that. But yeah, I, I, I certainly think, uh, you know, your recommendation, the 36, 30 to 60 minute mark, and this is where the field tests come in. Right. I, I still have athletes. If I, you know, don't coach them in person, like, okay, you're doing your, your, your functional threshold speed test today, go to a track, take the first 10 minutes, you know, of like, get a good warm up in first 10 minutes. And then, you know, kind of go get into a nice little rhythm and then run as hard as you can for 20 minutes. And then we take that 20 minutes and you can extrapolate maybe 95% or like whatever you want to do. And you average that last 20 minutes and you get your heart rate, you get your speed at that in an ideal world. And then you have a better idea of where that tempo or where that threshold work can be done. You know, one thing that you've mentioned that I want to highlight, and you mentioned it a couple of times, is this just idea of all these things are ranges. And, and I think a lot of people want real specific numbers. You know, my zone two heart rate is 135 beats per minute. But like you were saying earlier, there can always be a range. And some days it might be closer to 125. And some days you might be able to push it up to 140. And uh, I, I think, you know, I'm going to put on my coach's hat and just say, all of these things are so variable just because the human body is so variable and you have to take into consideration how much you're sleeping and how hydrated you are, what your stress levels are like, what your fatigue levels are like. All of these things really impact your physiology and, and how these processes occur within the human body. So, you know, if, if someone's just like a little slower on an easy run today or their threshold workout, you know, they didn't feel great and ended up being eight seconds a mile slower than last week. You know, these are not the variations that cause me to, you know, throw the training plan out the window and abandon the race. We can't accomplish this goal anymore. No, of course not. We are going to keep pressing forward with the understanding that, look, these things happen. You are never going to experience this linear progression. You're not a robot or a machine. And, and I think that's just really important for people to know because, um, you know, now that we have access to more data about our running than ever before, I, I think we get really obsessed about those numbers. And I think sometimes it's just, it works in our favor to step back and remind ourselves that there is going to be a lot of variation and that's completely normal. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about lactate threshold. Okay. We know what it is. We sort of understand how to, how to determine it now, but why should we care? What is so valuable about this threshold? You know, we talked a lot about the value of zone two training and all that it does for athletes, but what does threshold do? What does this lactate threshold do for distance runners? Yeah. So, so I, I think, you know, the, this definition of, oh, what, what's sustainable for 30 to 60 minutes came about because generally speaking, um, that's where most running races are going to occur, you know, like at least longer ones, you obviously in track and stuff, you have some, some shorter ones. Um, and then you do get into like, you know, a little bit of like the half marathon and marathon sort of stuff. But from a, from a general perspective, um, you know, we're, we're trying to, by doing threshold training, we're trying to improve our body's ability to sustain a very high intensity pace for longer. Right. And by training at, at, or slightly above threshold, we're going to, I mean, you, you improve a lot of like the, uh, you know, efficiency at that certain speed. So you're going to develop, uh, you know, 
as long as you're recovering enough, the, the, the muscles, the tendons, the, the ability to transfer energy, you know, from chemical energy to mechanical energy, um, you're stressing the body to the point. So if we look from like a molecular, you know, level within the muscle, this is the point where your body starts to accumulate more hydrogens and hydrogens and inorganic phosphate are what is most likely driving fatigue. So when your body is placed in a state of high, high hydrogens, high inorganic phosphates, it's going to, given a chance, um, adapt to better handle, better buffer those hydrogens in those inorganic phosphates. And the first place that it starts is actually within the mitochondria. So again, you know, we talk about high intensity interval training as, as helping your mitochondrial function and kind of zone two training, helping, uh, you know, more of your mitochondrial volume, but this, this threshold training is, is kind of, kind of a little bit of a mixture of both, right? If we're looking at it from, it's not, it's never absolute, but if you're looking at it from a, a spectrum, high intensity interval training is really going to be help the function a little bit more zone two is going to help the volume a little bit more. And then threshold training is going to kind of do both depending on what you need. And by having more robust mitochondria, so that could be either volume or function, you're going to be able to buffer those hydrogens even better and then delay fatigue even longer. You're going to be able to actually use more lactate because the more mitochondria you have and the more functional mitochondria you have, the better you can take that lactate, convert it into pyruvate and then oxidize it within the mitochondria. Um, so, so all in all, it's just, it's a fatigue resistance, um, sort of thing from a mechanical level to a, a biomolecular level. And for all those reasons, I have long thought that if I had to choose one type of workout for runners, lactate threshold would probably be my favorite. I think it's one of the most valuable and, you know, it doesn't matter really if you're a 5,000 or 10,000 meter runner, or if you're a half marathoner or a marathoner, the physiological ability to delay fatigue and run faster for longer is the gift that keeps on giving. I mean, that is, you know, one of our primary goals as endurance runners is just to run faster for longer. And so what workout gives you that advantage most productively? It's the lactate threshold workout. And so, of course, we're not going to do one workout all the time. I don't want anyone to misunderstand me, but it, it is what I consider a bread and butter workout that can be so incredibly valuable for so many different types of runners, even a relative beginner to an, an elite runner. You know, all these kinds of runners are doing lactate threshold workouts and for good reason. Uh, let's get into VO2 max. VO2 max, I think, is the sexier of the three. That's the high intensity interval training. That's the real fast stuff. That's the stuff that, you know, we might be doing in a CrossFit class. This is where other athletes might have more experience doing workouts like this because they're just much harder. They're much higher intensity. So what are we actually training at VO2 max? And, and what, what is this threshold really mean? Yeah. So, so again, the definition of VO2 max is the maximal amount of oxygen or the maximal rate of oxygen consumption your body can, can have during high intensity exercise. Um, oxygen is only used within your mitochondria. 
So it, at the end of the day, it comes down to the mitochondria and that's exactly what I did my PhD on. And it's, it's kind of something I, I, I want to explore a little bit more, but, um, it comes down to how well your mitochondria can actually use that oxygen and convert it or pair it with energy synthesis. So ATP, which is our energy currency of our cell. When we do high intensity interval training or uh, VO2 max training, that can come in many, many, many different forms. For example, this morning, I just did uh, 30 30s on the bike. So 30 seconds at really close to VO2 max uh, pace with 30 seconds of, of really, really easy. And I repeat, repeat that eight times. So I accumulate about four minutes of work and then I rest for three minutes. And then I repeat that about three times. It could also come in the form if you're, you know, if you've ever done, you know, any sort of, uh, like cross country training in high school or anything like that, the form of, of three to five minutes on with three to five minutes rest repeated three to five times. And I think that's kind of like the, the bread and butter. At least that's like what I recommend to people just to start. Um, it's really hard. So, so that's where like these, these, uh, undulating intervals where like, you know, you just go and run hard for 30 seconds and then rest for 30 seconds. I think we can wrap our minds a little bit more around 30 seconds, as opposed to if you get into, uh, mile repeats and you're halfway there and you're dying, it's really hard to keep the foot on the gas. Um, because that they are supposed to be hard. The only reason your body adapts is, is to internal stresses that cause it to adapt. Would you say that the shorter intervals might be more appropriate for a more beginner oriented runner? Because, you know, running mile reps at a VO2 max effort, it, that's something I did in college, but not something I recommend for the average runner. Like I, it, it just seemed like I look back on, I'm like, I have no idea how I did that. <laughs> that was a, a brutal workout. I do not wish that on my worst enemy. That seems to me just very advanced. You know, I, I, I certainly would say that. And I have to remind myself, you know, it's like what we're talking to runners here on a bike. It's a little bit different because you're not pounding on a bike, right? Whereas with running, if you're running at your view to max speed, you're going to be running really hard and creating a lot of physiological stress. So it's running, running is tough and we can get into recommendations because I want to talk about zone two a little bit more and like what my recommendations would be. But yes, I would certainly say that, you know, for most individuals, if you're, if you're kind of beginner to intermediate type of runner and you want to improve your VO2 max, these 30, 30s, uh, 40, 20s, 40, 15s are going to be a lot better way to, to get into it. Because what happens is the first interval is pretty easy. You go and you run, you're going pretty hard, pretty easy you rest, your heart rate comes down a little bit. And then you go and you do it again and your heart rate comes down a little less and a little less. And eventually you're, you've been working at VO2 max pace with a little bit less of that physiological strain, um, you know, for the same amount of time that you would be really accumulating. And uh, the key here is that, you know, the, the rest doesn't have to just be three minutes. It can actually be a little bit longer because you want that quality to stay high. You want the speed at your VO2 max intervals to stay, to stay high. Um, so, so that's just one, one sort of tip, but yeah, I, I certainly, I always think of everything from a consistency, specificity and progression, uh, sort of standpoint. So if no one, if someone's never done VO2 max intervals before, it doesn't make sense, you know, right. To start them, we'll say at like the extreme, which is like one mile repeat with the same amount of rest repeated five times, like absolutely did not make sense. Maybe just one of those intervals 
right? One of the 3030s is going to be adequate to kind of blast them apart and they're going to be a little sore the next day. Uh, you know, maybe they're feeling it in their legs, you know, for their easy runs and, and other things like that, but it's progressing towards, uh, you know, kind of, kind of getting better and, and more of that, uh, volume over time. And from a physiological standpoint, what we're really training is we're training our heart's ability to, to pump oxygenated blood to our muscles. And we're taxing the ability of our mitochondria to actually extract that oxygen. So it's kind of, it's kind of twofold. I think a lot of the times we, we see, oh, again, zone two work is going to do more of those peripheral adaptations, like, like capillary density and mitochondrial density, whereas high intensity interval work is more for your heart. I think that's an oversimplification. You're going to get both, especially if you haven't done it before. Um, but the, the general consensus is, is that, you know, you get a little bit more of those central adaptation. So your heart gets stronger. You're able to beat more blood more effectively. Um, I actually did a, a study on this in my PhD where we did one minute on one minute off repeated 10 times. And this was in sedentary in individuals. And we showed a 20 to 30% increase in mitochondrial function over the course of seven high intensity interval training sessions. So just to kind of put it in the face of, of you're getting both adaptations when you do this stuff. You know, uh, there's a concept that I think you are referencing that I've just used different words to describe in the past. And that's this difference between training that builds your capacity for more training or better racing. And then there's training that better utilizes your current capacity. And a lot of the zone two or even lactate threshold work is capacity training. It's sort of building a bigger base. Whereas the VO two max work is sort of more utilization training. It's like making the mitochondria that you have function better, but it's not really creating more mitochondria. What do you think of that? I, I really like that. And I think, um, you know, somebody I really admire in terms of getting people to do both the easy work and the hard work is Peter Atia. And, Cause he talks about, oh, well, you have to do your zone two work, you know, for this sort of adaptation, but you also have to do your high intensity interval training, your, your zone four work, your, your view to max work for longevity and cardiorespiratory function. And I think his, the way that he talked about it was, you know, like your, your zone two training, right. Is building that base. And I think this is like, most coaches have this analogy. You're, you're building, you're building the structure, you're building the uh, foundation of your house. And then with those, those higher quality, higher intensity pieces, you're kind of honing that edge, you know, you're bringing it up to a point or you're, you're building up your, your house even higher. So, yeah, I think that's, I think that's a really good analogy. And, but I, but I, I will say, and I told you, I wasn't going to correct you on the, on the podcast, but I will no, say, I, I welcome, <laughs> <laughs> I will say that if somebody has underdeveloped mitochondria to begin with, they're going to get both volume and functional changes to their mitochondria. Your mitochondria don't discriminate in terms of they're just trying. I, I, I say it like they're, they're thinking, um, they're not, but what your body is trying to do is put in structures and adaptations into that house in order to, uh, to stave off or to, to adapt to the stress that's being placed upon it. So whether it's, you know, proliferation of the mitochondria, which, there's, there's also a little bit, we're going to talk about this on my podcast at some point. So if you guys are interested in, in jumping over and sorry to just like take over and plug, but we will, we will talk about 
what we think is the time course of adaptation for the mitochondria. And it could be functional in the beginning because it's really easy to change the function of something, whereas it's a lot harder to add structures. So that's why it takes time for your heart to actually change in response to endurance training. That's why it takes time for your mitochondria to get bigger. That's why it takes time to accumulate, say, muscle mass if you're doing strength training, um, because it's just very energetically expensive to do that. Whereas you can change your function. Like if, if I'm sure you, strength running, right. You know, you, you tell people to, to do a lot of strength training. People can get a lot stronger with no changes in muscle mass over the course of six weeks of strength training. It's because we're changing the function of our neuromuscular ability to actually, you know, recruit those muscles. So that's like, that's, that's a little bit, you know, we're not, we won't go too deep into it, but I think function changes first and then structure changes in response to that. If the stress is kept long enough. So Phil, you mentioned earlier that you wanted to talk a little bit more about the application of some of these concepts, uh, maybe, maybe some specific workouts or training tips. Um, I I'd love to hear that because, you know, this is certainly really interesting from the perspective of just trying to figure out how much of my training time I should spend at these thresholds, near these thresholds. Um, the other thing I'm learning from you is that there's really no need to be super dogmatic about any of this stuff. You know, you're going to do a VO2 max workout. Of course, you're going to build some more mitochondria. It's not one or the other. Rarely is anything binary. And, you know, you don't necessarily have to spend all of your training time in zone two or either. You know, you can go into zone three and that's totally fine too for part of your running. So it's very encouraging to me that even though we have these more defined thresholds and that influences our training and these zones, there's still flexibility here. And, and I think every runner is on the one hand, trying to design better training so that they can more easily accomplish their goals. But at the same time, they don't want to turn their life into a giant science experiment. And, you know, like you said, run around with a, a Bane mask on their head, measuring their oxygen saturation or whatever. That's just not very practical. So how can we make all of this wonderful information a little bit more practical? Yeah. So, so we'll start with zone two, because I think that, you know, people, again, we we're like, oh, well, I know my zone two boundary is here right, is 135 beats per minute, for example. Well, let's take a step back. The first and the best way to actually know where any of these boundaries are actually occurring is to do physiological assessment. I understand physiological assessment can be can be cumbersome, it can be time-consuming, time uh, expensive. And I've also had people reach out to me, they're like, well, I don't even know if this stuff even makes sense because, you know, when I, when, when I personally look at their data, I'm like, yeah, this person didn't calibrate, you know, the machine correctly. And, you know, so then it's like, okay, well, that was a waste of time because, you know, none of this data, you know, I, I can actually use. So I, I think the first thing you need to do is think about physiological testing. And this could be as simple as, you know, doing something where you just figure out what your max heart rate is. You get on a treadmill and you run at a certain pace, really easy to start. And then you start running harder and harder and harder and harder. The first thing that you'll notice is that your breathing is going to change. The I, I don't know if you ever talk about the talk test, but the talk test is a good indication. It's not, it's, it's not very, uh, it's not perfect. We'll say that is a good indication of when you transition from kind of zone two into, uh, that, that threshold sort of, sort of area. And then when you go above your second threshold, you're 
really not going to be able to talk. You're really focusing on breathing. I got to get enough oxygen into my lungs because uh, if I don't, you know, I will, I, I won't be able to sustain this pace. And then you just keep upping that intensity every two to three minutes until you can't go any longer. Obviously you got to be careful with this because it's, it hurts to fall off of a treadmill speaking from experience. Um, yes, it does. <laughs> so, so you have to, you have to, you know, kind of know where your, your boundary, your limit is, and then you jump off the treadmill and then you should have had like a max heart rate. So now you have your max heart rate and there's a lot of things out there that can estimate, you know, your different zones, or if you're actually, you know, pretty astute, you can say, okay, well, my breathing changed at or at this time period, and that correlates to this heart rate and this speed. And then my breathing changed again, and that's you know according to this speed and this heart rate. Um, so those will give you good estimates of where to start. Then what you can do is you can say, okay, well I'm going to go do some zone two uh, running, and I I don't know many people who don't have a heart rate monitor and or a GPS watch. So have both of those recording on your watch. Go out at what you think is a either a pace or a heart rate that's going to be around zone two. And from a practical perspective, if you're doing 45 minutes to an hour and a half, which is, I think, you know, generally what, what people would do for like an easier a zone two workout, your heart rate should not Im- increase more than 5% from where you started. Um, that's a, that's a, that, again, a loose recommendation, but you should not see your heart rate climb up, uh, more than 5%. If it does, then okay, maybe you went a little bit hard. Maybe you kind of slipped into that zone three, like Jason was talking about earlier. That's okay. Next time come back, go a little bit, you know, dial the heart rate down a little bit or speed down a little bit and then increase from there. And if it's within that zero to 5% mark, then, you know, then, you know, you're kind of hitting that, that zone two. Phil, how do you account for the, you know, first 10 minutes or so of a run when your heart rate is sort of steadily climbing before it sort of levels off? I would, I would just ignore that data. Um, if ignore you ignore the first 10 minutes, there. yeah, yeah. Just okay. ignore, ignore the first 10 minutes. It's your, your body takes a, a little bit of time to, you know, come into some sort of steady state equilibrium heart rate, especially. Um, so yeah, just ignore that data. Cause it's going to pull things down a little bit. And it's, if you, if you zoomed in on it, it's going to be like, oh my gosh, your, uh, your increase in heart rate was like 300%. So, you know, like <laughs> and then, and then, you, you know, you, of course you'd be chasing, uh, something that's not actually zone two. Um, I would also say for runners, especially, um, because running is such a high load demand, you know, it, it is weight bearing. It's much, much better to run under zone two than to slip into that zone three. And I, I, and I say this from a consistency standpoint, because if you're accumulating less damage, which is, which is kind of what the stress of exercise is going to do, then you're going to be able to accumulate more volume later on. And trust me, sometimes zone two feels really slow and it really is. Um, I was training I did a, I did a 50 K earlier this year. And then I was kind of trying to up my, up my running volume a little bit more. And what I told myself is I was like, I'm not going to run over 135 beats per minute. Cause that's kind of where I determined my second threshold to be. And some days that was like nine or 10 minute mile pace. And I used to, I used to run like, you know, 16 flat for a, for a 5k. So I'm moderately in shape now. But it, 
it's going to feel slow. And if, and if it's one of those things, like, cause I get people asking me this all the time, especially beginners is like, well, I can't keep my heart rate below that second threshold. Then maybe you need to mix in some walking and running at the same time, because your body is just physiologically not capable of actually reestablishing some level of, of steady state. That's going to be appropriate for the amount of fatigue that's actually being accumulated for that pace. So it's okay. Like, you know, run a little bit, walk a little bit, and you know, then your body will eventually build up the structures over time because we'll be f- accumulating more volume and staying healthy. And then you'll be able to start to string together longer and longer runs. I don't know. Is that how, is that how you kind of recommend it or do you do something different? Uh, no, I, I, I think that's a great approach. I mean, I think especially if you're a newer runner or you're trying to build volume, the intensity of your training is not really even the first, second, or third goal. So, you know, are, are your easy runs at, at eight minute pace or eight forty five pace? It doesn't really matter to me as a coach. I just want them to be easy enough. And you know, I'll put on my researcher hat now. I want you to be under your first threshold so that the training is sustainable, so that we can add more volume, and I think just as importantly, keep you healthy. You know, I, I think the psychological side of things is just as important because if you're a new runner and you get hurt in month two, that is going to cause a a certain level of mental injury or mental anguish about the sport that to me as a coach almost jeopardizes your ability to stay consistent and really get into the sport. Like we've got to stay healthy for a certain amount of time and ensuring our training is lower, low intensity enough, I think is, is a big part of that. Mm -hmm. And you also have to remember too, you know, like recovery zone two work is to then facilitate that higher intensity stuff because the higher intensity stuff, I like to think of it as kind of, uh, you know, like a sledgehammer for adaptation. Yeah. You're honing, you know, you're honing the tip of the spear, but it's like, it's grinding that spear pretty, pretty, pretty hard and pretty sharp. Um, so, so I guess we can switch into more of like the threshold stuff, uh, or the second threshold stuff. Um, I think from a practical perspective, everything or the way that I like to coach, and this is what I've talked about on my podcast is, is general to specific. So for example, if you have, if you're, if you're running a marathon, then we're going to start, you know, probably with some, some VO2 max development and a lot of zone two work. And then we're slowly over the course of the season going to kind of bring up that zone two work. Like it's going to get a little bit harder and bring down that high intensity work. It's going to get a little bit easier, but it's going to get longer and it's going to be more closely related to that marathon race pace, um, sort of stuff. So, so all of this is also, uh, from a, from a temporal perspective, changing and shifting. But when you do go to do your, your tempo runs, um, or your, yeah, or your threshold runs, the, the key is, is that you're trying to accumulate time at a pace that could, that would be sustainable, right? For 30 to 60 minutes, but you break it up into eight or 10 minute bouts, right? And, and there's different ways of approaching this with a few minutes of rest. So you know how we were talking about VO2 max. It's like, you know, equal amount of work to rest ratios. If we're taking one step back and doing threshold work, it's like, uh, I think it's like four to one work to rest. So, well, that's not a hard and fast rule, but it's something along those lines. So like eight minutes on two minutes off. So you have 10, a, a 10 minute, uh, you know, round. 
And then you repeat that two to four times, depending on where you're at in the season, how you're progressing, other things like that. And you'll know very quickly if that pace isn't very sustainable, you shouldn't be getting to the end of it and feeling like you just gave it your all because you only have two minutes to recover. So you need to actually take a step back, make it a little bit easier. It should be hard, but not so hard that it's like, oh, I'm collapsing at at the end here because you only have, like I said, two minutes to to recover and then do that thing again. Yeah, that I think that's a good approach. And it, it's a sustainable approach to these kinds of workouts, uh, especially when you're talking about VO2 max workouts, which I think need to be approached just a little bit more cautiously for a lot of runners because of the mechanical aspect of it, because of the load of running at, at those intensities. It's just really hard in the body. Um, oh, Phil, this was really interesting for me to, to geek out a little bit on the physiology of all these different zones, what's happening in the body when we reach certain intensities. Uh, is there anything super important that I might have missed that you want to add on on either of the thresholds, how to apply them in training, uh, common misconceptions about these thresholds and and how we think about them? I, I think I think the last thing I'll lead or leave the listeners with is that if you're beginner to intermediate and you're trying to build, say, volume or even do more of like, say, VO2 max development and you've never done it before, it's okay to start like on a bike or on an elliptical or on something that's a little bit less weight bearing because of the nature of running, it is pounding. It, it does take time to recover from. Um, so don't be afraid to, to do cross training, to try to get a little bit more volume in. Um, and it also kind of gives you the ability to take away, uh, you know, you, you shouldn't do this all the time, but it takes away kind of like the technical aspect of running and allows you to actually, uh, maybe put in a little bit harder work, say on like the, the VO two max intervals and other things like that. That's, that's personally just how I've been going about things right now, just because I am very injury prone. So I'm trying to build my volume through cycling a lot. And then I'm trying to do quality running sessions two to three times, um, per week. So you can, you can apply all of the principles that we just talked about to that cross training as well. You just got to do a, 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 some sort of physiological assessment, then get an idea. And then, uh, you know, you can also build volume and build intensity, intensity, uh, that way. You know, let me ask you a cross training question before we sign off. I, I am uh, really into adding a lot of essentially zone two cross training. Uh, cause I think it is much safer than running from an injury perspective. How do you think about layering on top of your normal training, a couple of hours of say cycling? for extra zone two development. I, I think that's exactly what, what I was kind of getting at is if you have the time to devote, you know, to a little bit more training and you're, uh, you know, a little bit more physically limited in terms of, in terms of running at the current moment, then yeah, getting on the bike and doing, you know, even, even like, you know, 30 to 30 to 60 minutes, uh, a couple times a week, you just have to remember that you are still accumulating more volume. So you don't want to you don't want to just go from like, you know, running 20 miles a week to then adding, uh, an extra four hours of, of cycling training, right? You still got to build up and you have to follow those principles of progression in order to make it so you're not going to burn out and things are still, uh, you know, appropriate, uh, you know, for your continued adaptation. Cause, uh, it is one of those things where you could, 
it, it'd be like burning the candle at both ends, right? If you're, if you're doing a little bit too much volume compared to what your body's actually prepared for. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, my thinking on this has changed a little bit over the years. I used to think that there was virtually no injury risk with getting on a stationary bike. And I still think it's probably going to be pretty rare for a runner to get hurt doing a couple hours of cycling during the week. But where the issue really begins is, is not on the bike, but the next day when you go for your workout or your run, and then you're just carrying an extra 10, 20, 30% more fatigue around with you, that's going to negatively impact the run. And that's where the injury could occur. Just because you're tired, your movement, your mechanics might be a little bit off. Um, you know, you might be spending a little bit more time in zone three because you're confident now because you're doing all the cycling and it's this perfect little mixture of, of, you know, confidence and fatigue that can then lead to an injury. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a, that's a, that's a perfect way to, to sum it up is just, just be cautious and, um, it's okay. You know, if you're not feeling good one day, it's better to just like take a day off or take it really easy. Just go for a walk instead. Cause you're still, if we're talking about zone two stuff and you're, you know, beginner to intermediate walking is still going to get your heart rate up. It's going to, you know, stimulate tendon adaptation, bone adaptation, other things like that without the running movement. So, so I just, I, I think the bottom line is that I just want to encourage people, especially in the running community, it's okay to go a little bit slower and it's okay to go a little bit easier on, you know, any given day, but you have to listen to your body and you have to listen. Your body is telling you and giving you signs. Um, if you wake up or, or if you have a, a crappy night's sleep, if you wake up and you're super achy or super tired, that's not a time to, oh, I just need to like, you know, put my head down and grin and bear it. Um, it'll be way, way better for you to take one day off and then recover fully going into the next day, then it will be to push through that and then get injured for, I don't know, you know, three weeks to three months, depending on, you know, what the, the severity of the injury is. Great advice, Phil. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, sharing your expertise. Uh, I recently started following you on Instagram where you go deep on a lot of different physiological principles. Um, and, and you have the coolest Instagram handle. So tell oh, our thanks. listeners what your Instagram handle is. <laughs> yeah. My, uh, my Instagram handle is critical O2. Um, oh, so perfect. You are yeah. on brand, my friend. <laughs> yeah. That's the, that was like, that was the appreciation for all of that as I, as I went through my PhD and everything like that. So I, I thought it would work and, um, yeah, Jason, thanks for having me on. I, I, I really admire, you know, all of like the awesome information that you put out as well. And I, 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 I'm glad that I was able to hopefully contribute to your community a little bit. Oh, Phil, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. I hope everyone follows you on Instagram uh, because they're going to learn a little bit more about the science of the sport, what, what's going on underneath the hood. And I really do think knowledge is a competitive advantage and we're all going to be much better runners for it. So thank you. Yep. Thanks. And that's our show today, my friends. Thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to pay it forward, you can rate and review the show, share it with your running friends or club, or you can invest in a training program at strengthrunning.com. You can also support our sponsors who help me keep the lights on. Use their links and discount codes to support the Strength Running Podcast. First is one of my personal favorite strength and performance tools. I have one myself, the Mobo Board. Go to moboboard.com and use code STRENGTHRUN10 to save 10% on your board. It was invented by famous physical therapist Jay DeSherry, who I've had on the podcast before. And Mobo helps you stabilize your stance with a rocker board set up on these two innovative fins. 
There's this hole where your four little toes are supposed to be, which effectively forces you to drive your big toe into the board to improve your stability. If you want to hear Jay and I discuss stability training in a lot more detail, you can check out episode 275. Now, I've talked about this before, but I didn't really think I had too many balance issues. And when I first started using the Mobo board, I thought I was going to be pretty good at it, but (laughs) I was proved wrong very, very quickly. Even if you're a good runner, better balance, stability, and proprioception are all going to help you have a more powerful stride and prevent more running injuries. You're going to learn how to improve the efficiency of the kinetic chain from your hip to your big toe. Because, as Jay likes to say, it's not just how strong you are, but how well you use that strength. Save 10% with code STRENGTHRUN10 at checkout at moboboard.com. Again, that's code STRENGTHRUN10 at moboboard.com. I'm also grateful for the support of AG1, the health and wellness company that makes comprehensive daily nutrition incredibly simple. Now, I personally struggle with eating healthy for every meal of the day, Because what can I say? I love convenience. So I find AG1 extraordinarily helpful to help optimize my health by giving my body what it needs. You can learn more about it at drinkag1.com slash Jason. One scoop gives me 75 vitamins and minerals and whole food sourced ingredients, including a green superfood blend, probiotics, prebiotics, adaptogens, and more. AG1 helps me fill in all those nutrition gaps in my diet because there are some gaps, and it gives me a nice boost of energy and focus throughout the day. I just feel like I'm firing on all cylinders when I'm taking my AG1. I also really appreciate that it supports my immune system. I've got three kids. They're all in elementary school, and I know I've got to support my immune system, especially here in the winter months. One of the things I really love about AG1, though, is that it actually changes. Over the last decade, they have made over 50 different improvements to the AG1 formula based on the latest research. And those improvements are all there to make those nutrients more absorbable and the product more rigorous with the third-party testing that they do. Go to drinkag1.com Jason. You'll see the great offer they've put together for our listeners. A year's worth of free vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1 with your first purchase. I personally find the travel packs extraordinarily convenient when I'm traveling. You just throw them in your suitcase or your travel bag, and you're going to have one every single day you're away. Now, you can sign up for just a single shipment if you want to try it, or you can sign up for a monthly subscription if you want to make AG1 a part of your regular healthy lifestyle. Go to drinkag1.com Jason, and you can sign up today. All right, that's our show this week, my friends. I so appreciate you being here for being part of the strength running community and all your support. We'll be in touch.